0: Hello, everyone. This is Pastor Becky Brown. I'm one of the associate pastors here at First United Methodist Church in Waynesville, North Carolina. You're about to listen to the sermon from worship this week. You can also watch this service online through our YouTube channel. You can just search FUMC Waynesville on YouTube or join us in person at 9 a.m. or 11 a.m. every Sunday. Thanks for listening, and we hope this sermon challenges, inspires, and invigorates your faith. May God bless you. You may remember this book, Reconstructing the Gospel, Finding Freedom from Slaveholder Religion by Jonathan Wilson Hargrove. Um, this was a book that we studied together. Um, we were led by Dr. Brandy Hennick Crawford. Um, she led us in a study about this book over Zoom. It seems like a really long time ago, um, back when we were isolating and we were the church building was closed and we were having wonderful Wednesday discussions together um, online. And so we read this book and we challenged one another to read this book. And and it was um, something that was difficult for us to embark upon because it's not a simple read. Um, There's a lot of complexities that were brought to the surface that we had to have difficult conversations together. um, But the challenge that it brought is something that's important to remember for me. And I keep returning to this book, in particular, a story that's near the end of this book. Um, The story is about um, Dr. William Barber's leadership in his church in Greenleaf in Goldsboro, North Carolina. So he says, in Goldsboro, North Carolina, across the tracks from downtown, in the neighborhoods where most people think important things are happening in this eastern North Carolina town, Reverend Barber has taught and practiced for a quarter century the faith that was passed down to him. When he came to the congregation in the mid-1990s, they already had plans to grow the church by adding on to their existing church building. Sounds familiar? In their imagination, church growth meant more people, and more people meant a larger space. Faith was trusting that God could make a way for the bank to lend the money and for the people to pay their mortgage. Reverend Barber asked the church leadership to come with him on a retreat, Together they read Jesus' first sermon in Luke's gospel, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to proclaim the good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. If this was Jesus' first sermon, Reverend Barber asked, What does it tell us about the priorities of this earthly ministry? And how should it shape our vision for what we're doing together as a church in Goldsboro? You know, this is another question that we've asked ourselves here at the church. For African-Americans who had been faithful church members all of their lives, it was a transform- transformative conversation. In so many ways, they had assumed that what white folks called church was what they were supposed to be doing too, even in a different style. The basic goal was the same, building up an institution that justified itself by the number of people who showed up to receive spiritual nourishment. Whatever material ministry the church engaged in was secondary to this mission. No one could deny that Jesus calls us to feed the hungry, clothe the naked, heal the sick, and visit the imprisoned. But those works of mercy had to be imagined as auxiliary ministries dependent on the central mission of building up a spiritual institution. No one had ever made this case to them. It simply was what they understood when they heard the word church. But what if the church was something else? What if it was the movement Jesus invited people into when he invited them to join together in setting the oppressed free? What if evangelism was inviting others to join this movement and church work was organizing local efforts to keep the movement going? Jesus' first sermon guided the leadership of Greenleaf toward a new definition of mission. They got out a map of Goldsboro, drew a circle with a two-mile radius around the building they already owned, and said, This is where we're called to set the oppressed free. Whatever is enslaving people, we commit to fight it by the power of the Spirit. We have done this very same exercise as your church staff. When we went on our retreat just a few months ago, We spent time doing a very similar exercise of evaluating our local community, evaluating um, how we are being called as the body of Christ here in Waynesville in this physical location to continue in ministry. We may not have used the words setting the oppressed free, but I wonder if we should be. So he continues over the next decade a congregation of about 150 people invested 1.5 million that's amazing of its own money into a community development project that brought over 10 million of investments into their neighborhood they partnered with the state and local government businesses congregations and individuals to build 56 single-family homes 40 units of subsidized senior housing a restaurant and a community center which houses a preschool, an after-school program, a game prevention program, and a re-entry program for people coming home from prison. And 25 years later, after their leadership retreat, they still haven't built a new sanctuary. When I read this, it makes me pause. It makes me consider, it makes me reevaluate what my visions are and what my goals are for our congregation here at FUMC. It makes me want to challenge our staff, want to challenge one another in leadership roles in this church, make us want to challenge one another as members together in this body of Christ to consider what ministry looks like for us. Lastly, he says, Jesus only had 12 disciples, but in the unlikely mix of a small group he gathered around him, we can see the patterns of a movement that interrupts America's racial habits. Matthew, the tax collector, a federal employee, broke bread with former zealots who would be on any terrorist watch list today. Fundamentalism to fusion politics, which extends far beyond any church or creed, is the gospel practice that leads us into surprising friendships. By endeavoring to live as Christ lived in the world, the church helps everyday people see and remember that another way is possible. So as we approach Martin Luther King Jr. Day tomorrow, um, I've been reflecting quite a bit on Dr. Martin Luther King's life and legacy, Um, decades of course after his tragic shooting death at the age of 39, my age, in 1968 in Memphis. So I give thanks for his calling, for his prophecy, for his leadership, and his spiritual awakening for so many people. And we celebrate the effort that he gave um, to bring about change in our country, to bring about the way that we understand ourselves, um, the leadership he displayed in the Civil Rights Movement. And we remember that he was a powerful preacher and pastor, and we grieve that his life was taken violently and much too soon so I continue to reflect about racial justice about the call to end racism about equality and about freedom and I've thought about how far we as a nation have come and as as a small mountain community ourselves have have come and I'm grateful for those steps that we are making um, to end racism to talk about justice um, to bring about equality, and to get to know our neighbors, and create a more beloved community. I'm grateful for the spiritual awakening that we had in the past couple of years um, to dive deeper into understanding, to understand racism in general, to understand how we can be even begin and how we can begin to overcome it together. And I recognize we have a ways to go. And I know that there's a lot of work to be done, to be, especially to realize this kingdom-sized dream and to continue to work towards this inclusive, beloved community. And so sometimes when I think about people like MLK, when I think about these, um, the greatness of these people that we admire, um, these magnanimous people um, who we look up to or we um, see as massive world changers, in our course of history, especially someone as, as young as him. Sometimes it's a struggle to relate. I mean, it goes beyond the fact that I'm a white woman trying to relate to a black man. It's beyond that. It's, beyond, it's that basic human character of how can we relate to someone like him? You know, MLK's birthday reminds us all that freedom is for all people, regardless of skin color and that we've not yet arrived. So as he said, God is not interested merely in the freedom of black men and brown men and yellow men. God is interested in the freedom of the whole human race. So some of you might be wondering, why are we even talking about MLK in our Sunday sermon? You know, what does this have to do with our faith? You know, Martin Luther King and, and many other civil rights leaders um, and many of you who are part of our congregation lived during that time and were a part of that movement who were propelling and challenging churches um, as we have so many of our, our clergy people here in our congregations who who remember the the work that was done, that needed to be done um, during that time. And, and thank you for being those leaders for us. You know, it seems like we... Um, can't even think about these, these leaders in these ways in which, you know, they're untouchables. You know, they're like the superhumans that we can never really imagine to be. So it's easy to sit back and look at a distance and admire history and admire the people who are, who are taking those leadership roles, um, giving thanks for them as, as the dynamic leaders that they are, and, and thinking, you know, we just can't, basically can't compete with a person like that. But does that mean that our efforts end with the admiration and the gratitude? You know, this weekend, our youth are gathering and have been gathering um, with members of our congregation and members of Grace Episcopal's congregation at Camp Cedar Cliff. They're on a winter retreat. And their theme for the entire weekend is freedom. They're being challenged in their worship talks and they their singing together and in their small group conversations to think about what it means to have freedom in faith. What does it mean to be set free? What are we set free from? What are we set free to do? Who are we set free to become? How do we live as free people individually and as a whole group as the church? So in an effort to maintain that solidarity, you may have noticed that we're talking about freedom um, in our sermons on Sunday and in the past couple weeks. So today we look at what it means to be free at last. You know, our scripture today comes from 1 Corinthians, and it's the very beginning of his letter to the church. And it's easy to skip over this section because it's a part of the Bible where it's just like, oh, this is just the introduction. But there's a lot to gain from this scripture text, um, from these few verses. Paul begins with flattery. I mean, who doesn't want to flatter the people that you're writing to? Um, But in these moments of flattery, he, he identifies a lot of very important facts about the community there, about the church in Corinth. He identifies that the people have already been gifted by the Holy Spirit. He says to them that God has been moving among them in powerful ways, and has been propelling them into ministry. He reminds them of the deep sense that they have felt of the calling of God on their lives and how they've been blessed and how they have experienced God's grace. So his affirmation of the body of Christ, that they've already been gifted, lets them know that they have already received all of the gifts that they need to follow Jesus and to be propelled into faith, and to be effective, and to be in ministry together. So the scripture reads, I give thanks to my God always for you, because of the grace of God that has been given you in Christ Jesus. For in every way you have been enriched in him, in speech, and in a knowledge of every kind, just as the testimony of Christ has been strengthened among you, so that you are not lacking in any spiritual gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord, Jesus Christ. So God has already given us everything that we need to do what God has, is leading us to do. God has already given us what we, what we need to be, um, what God is leading us to become. This truth is truly liberating. That through Christ, through the gift of the Holy Spirit, through God's power, we are already <laughs> equipped to preach and live the gospel. It's impossible for us to be someone else, but we are free to be our best selves at last that God is creating us to be. That means that we, as the church body of Christ, we have all that we need to continue in ministry together in powerful ways. That these God-sized dreams that we have are not only attainable, but we trust that God has already given us each of us, all that we have to do, the work of God. You know, it's easy for us to sit back and talk about the ways that we're not equipped, to talk about, to make excuses about the fact that we don't have enough. We don't have enough people. Um, Not enough people are coming into the church. We don't have enough um, funds. Um, Our pledges aren't coming in for 23 as we would have hoped. Um, We can't do the things that we hope because we're seeing from a lens of scarcity. Seeing and thinking this way only leads to bondage, not freedom. So when I think about a man like, like Martin Luther King Jr., I'm reminded that he was a man, a man of deep faith. He was not merely a political figure who is best known for his march on Washington. He was a preacher, a pastor, a a person steeped in the scriptures, someone who was deeply rooted in a spiritual life of prayer and meditation, whose inner work led him to answer the call, to preach, to teach, to lead, to influence a nation for change. He looked to his spiritual mentors like Howard Thurman for spiritual grounding and holy conversation, and his faith led him to greatness. And he's known to have said, not everybody can be famous, but everybody can be great. Because greatness is determined by service. You only need a heart full of grace and a soul generated by love. When I think about Greenleaf Church, it's really easy for me to draw parallels with our church. I can think about those needs that that congregation filled in Goldsboro and I can see our church fulfilling similar needs. So it makes me want to ask the question. When we look around our church community, when we look around, if we pick up a map and look to see what, who, what and who surrounds us, how are we proclaiming the gospel to let the oppressed free? What is oppressing the people around us? that are in our community. How can we look and say, we are the body of Christ. We already have all that we need in the gifts that we have and the people that are here within each of us individually and as a church to do what God is asking us to do, to be the church that God has blessed us to be. So how can we live into that understanding that we're free, we are free at last? I can't wait to see where God takes us next.